This is Medieval Death Trip for Monday, August 3rd, 2015, episode 14, concerning the death of Simon de Montfort. Welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane, and I'm practically on schedule for a change. Uh, Last episode, we heard from the Melrose Chronicle uh, about how Simon de Montfort outwitted royalist forces at the Battle of Lewis in the Second Baron's War with a custom-built chariot, and I mentioned that there are some interesting stories about the ultimate fate of Simon that we might revisit in a later episode. Now, way back in the innocent days of early June when I was composing that last episode, uh, I had plans for either a Father's Day episode or a summer solstice episode that would carry us off into other texts um, and thought that we might revisit Simon's story sometime, you know, maybe months later. But... This summer, having been what it was, and those special event episodes having been postponed until the calendar cycles around again, um, I'm thinking to myself, hey, let's just keep on chugging with Simon's story. So today and next episode, we will follow Simon de Montfort into death and beyond. This episode is the death, and the next episode will be beyond. The story so far. As a consequence of the Battle of Lewis in 1264, Simon de Montfort captured King Henry III and his son, Prince Edward, the future King Edward I. As you may or may not recall, uh, Simon, uh, who was the Earl of Leicester, led a coalition of leading barons against the king, who was seen to be under the sway of foreign, uh, which is to say French, aristocrats whom he was bringing into his court, Uh, and who it was feared were being privileged over the native English barons, Um, never mind the irony that Simon de Montfort was himself from France. Anyway, the barons initially managed to coerce King Henry into agreeing to their demands, getting him to accept the so-called Provisions of Oxford, which took much of the government away from the king and put it into the hands of a council of the barons of the realm. Eventually, Henry bucked these, with the help of some overseas allies and a papal bull, and that's what led to the open conflict of the Second Barons' War, uh, with the king and some royalist barons fighting against Simon de Montfort and the larger party of the rest of the barons. Uh, This is all the background information for the war that I rather skipped over um, in my introduction to last episode, um, and which last episode's text uh, partially filled in. Anyway, after the Battle of Lewis, Simon and the barons defeated the royalist forces and captured both the king and his heir. They didn't depose him, nor did they execute him, like the parliamentarians will do to Charles I. Um, But King Henry was no longer governing. Simon was running the kingdom in the king's name, um, but organized around the principles uh, he and the barons had established in the provisions of Oxford um, through a ruling council and, significantly for English history, a summoned parliament, which, while not the first parliament, uh, essentially established and modeled the principles of parliamentary representation, um, including representatives of the commons, which were to become a more central part of English government uh, later on in history. 
Now, an interesting little bit of trivia here about Simon's year or so of heading the governing council. Um, and though he never took a special title, he was basically a de facto Lord Protector. So this past week, I was listening to my first ever episode of the podcast, Answer Me This, um, with Ollie Mann and Helen Zaltzman. That would have been episode uh, 319. Um, and I'd heard good things about this podcast, and in the week since um, trying it out, I've nearly consumed the whole available back catalog uh, of episodes. Anyway, one of the questions they answered on last week's episode was, where does the name of the children's game Simon Says come from? There are a number of theories about this, but one of them discussed by Helen and Ollie is that the Simon of Simon Says is Simon de Montfort, and the game is an allusion to Simon's year of being basically a dictator who was able to make everyone do as he said, uh, despite not actually being king, which makes it a more notable feat. Now, I did some searching of scholarly databases, and I can't find any published articles by folklorists or historians that make this claim. Now, it may well be a sourced claim in a book that I didn't find in my searches, um, but I'm going to go out on a limb uh, and guess that Helen and Ollie got this tidbit, uh, which, to be fair, they present as just one theory out of many, um, but that they got it from the Wikipedia page for Simon Says, which attributes this particular etymology to an article by Mike Smith published as a Yahoo Games blog. And Mike Smith just says, quote, according to some, the name comes from Simon de Montfort. Uh, I also found through a Google book search another author of a recent compendium of children's games referencing this claim. Um, but this person also simply says, historians suspect that Simon says is named after our Simon. Anyway, I haven't found a single actual historian making this claim or laying out the evidence for it, uh, and I rather suspect it's another ring-around-the-rosy case, uh, which, if you haven't heard, uh, is not a nursery rhyme involving a coded reference to the Black Death, um, or at least there's zero actual evidence to suggest that it is, uh, beyond fanciful imaginings despite the assertions of innumerable sheets of factoids uh, out there. At any rate, Simon's tenure as the Sayer-in-Chief of England was not to last. In May of 1265, uh, Prince Edward escaped from Simon's custody and was able to revitalize the royalist opposition and gather a formidable army. It is with this that our first text for today begins. Uh, we're going to hear two accounts of the battle that essentially ended the Second Baron's War, the Battle of Evesham. And the first is from our same sources last time, the Chronicle of Melrose. We're going to pick up just a few pages after where we left off last time, after the Battle of Lewis. And I have a couple of little facts uh, for you to bear in mind that might help um, illustrate this text a bit more. Um, and this is the ages of the characters involved. Both King Henry and Simon de Montfort were 57 years old. Though, as we'll see, Henry is portrayed as practically a doddering old man, whereas Simon is seen as quite vigorous. Uh, Prince Edward, the villain of the piece, was 26, um, but already showing the kind of iron-fisted attitude that would later earn him such monikers as the Hammer of the Scots. Also, a quick presenter's note, 
um, I'll risk minor embarrassment by uh, just taking a guess at the pronunciation of one of the major characters' uh, names in this account. This person is Guy, or perhaps Guy uh, de Baliol. I haven't been able to get any clear answer on which pronunciation, Guy or Guy, would be more appropriate for a 13th century knight, uh, so I'm going to opt for the English pronunciation, um, though I suppose there's a 50% chance that I might end up sounding like an uncultured clod to some segment of medieval historians. Uh, oh well. All right. On to the Melrose Chronicle, um, again as translated by Joseph Stevenson. Edward, the eldest son of the King of England, having escaped from the custody of Simon, which he did one evening when he went out into the fields for recreation with a very few persons of Simon's household, joined himself with many of the marchmen who had long held lands under him in the marches of Wales, that is to say, in the county of Chester, and by them he was welcomed with immense joy. After having remained with them for two days, he hastened to the Earl of Gloucester to procure the liberation of his father. On his arrival, the Earl received him with sufficient respect. While they were eventually discussing the King's detention in the hands of Simon, the Prince begged the Earl to aid him in the liberation of the King. The Earl promised that he would place all of his army at the King's disposal. He collected his troops with the greatest expedition, and he marched with all haste against Simon, along with Edward and his marchers. At this juncture, Simon was at Hereford, and the King was kept there in constraint along with him. Now, as soon as Simon discovered that the Earl of Gloucester was on the eve of marching against him, along with his army, to attack him, he sent without delay to such of the nobles as had continued firmly attached to the side of the barons in the late battle. As soon as this message reached the nobles and the barons, they were aghast at the unexpected escape of Edward, and they immediately went to Simon, whom they joined at Evesham, upon the day appointed. Using that degree of caution which the circumstances required, Simon had left his son, who bore the same name, in one of the chiefest strongholds in all of England, that is to say, in the castle of Kellingsworth, or Kenilworth, together with many of the armed nobility, that if it so happened that Edward should attack Simon the father in the front, Simon the son and his army should assail Edward in the rear. And this plan would have been carried out, but for the treachery of a certain knight who betrayed to Edward the arrangement of Simon the Elder respecting the large body of armed men who were in the said castle. Having intimation beforehand, through the intelligence of this traitor, that the armed men were to march out of the castle while it was yet daylight, and that they intended passing the night in the town which was close at hand, he that very night dispatched a detachment of the army which he had collected to intercept the troops of Simon who, as we have mentioned, had the day before, unfortunately for themselves, abandoned the castle, meaning to sleep in the various dwelling houses which were in its immediate proximity. Their object in leaving the castle was this, that when they rose up from their beds early in the morning, they might have the comfort of a satisfactory bath, which would make them all the fitter for the battle on the morrow. For the town afforded much more accommodation for the purpose of bathing in the way of baths than they could expect to find within the walls of the castle. 
and this was the motive which induced them to abandon that strongly fortified castle of Simon's, and when the knight, whom we have mentioned as having betrayed the circumstance of their departure to Edward, made him acquainted with the fact, he did not fail to state that the baths had been provided for them within the town. So it was that, towards midnight, a loud cry was raised throughout the whole town when Edward's soldiers rushed in upon the sleeping troops of Simon. When they heard the noise, they were beyond measure terrified by the outcry, for fear and trembling, terror and apprehension seized them when they heard the noise of horses and the riders calling out for them, saying, Get up, get up, rise from your beds and come out, ye traitors. You are the followers of that deep-dyed renegade Simon, and by the death of God you are all dead men. Thus these persons, who had been so shamefully betrayed, all rose up and escaped by the backs of the houses, leaving behind them their horses, their arms, their clothes, and all the baggage which they possessed. Had you been there, you might have seen some of them running off entirely naked, others with nothing upon them save a pair of breeches, others in their shirts and drawers. And of all of them there were very few, perhaps not one, who was so fortunate as to be able to dress entirely. Many of them carried off their clothes under their arms, and just as they had hurried out of the house in the hottest haste in this plight, God in his infinite mercy giving them their lives, Edward's armed soldiers rushed in and made plunder of the horses and armor and everything else which, as we have said, had been left behind them by the fugitives. In the morning the foot soldiers, who the day before had followed at the tails of the knight's horses, clothed themselves in the armor of those noblemen who had escaped, and mounted their horses. You might there have seen the accomplishment of the prophecy of the preacher, I have seen servants upon horses, and princes walking as servants upon the earth. When all these rascally fellows came to Edward, well armed and riding upon the horses of the noblemen, he rejoiced with an exceeding great joy, and so Edward marched with a large army towards Evesham against Simon. When he had come within two miles of Evesham, Simon came out to oppose him, hoping where there was no hope. For, as I have already mentioned, he had trusted that his son Simon, who had fled with the others, would join him, and assist him by attacking Edward on the rear, and so he went out with the little army which he had. It marched forward boldly, but all who were with him before going out to battle had made confession and had communicated in the viaticum of the Holy Eucharist. Edward had six or seven men, where Simon had scarce two. Then the powerful and terrible army of Edward and the insignificant troop of Simon de Montfort joined in battle, the latter being preceded by that bold knight, Guy de Balliol, carrying Simon's standard, Close by him was Simon's eldest son, Henry, a gallant knight who had been so named after King Henry. It was he who struck the first blow in the battle. The blow was returned, and he was the first of the many who fell there and died, for he was pierced by several mortal wounds inflicted by various hands. On the side of Edward, very few fell, on account of the multitude of the soldiers who were on the side of the conquerors, but on the other side, nearly all were slain, along with Simon himself, because their numbers were so few and they were so soon exhausted. A few only escaped, by surrendering to Edward's soldiers and laying down their arms. That guy, whom I have lately mentioned as a valiant Scottish knight, might then have been saved from a temporal death, but he would not. He was killed, as well as a great number of the English nobility, who had come out to fight for justice to England. 
and of all the rightfulness of their cause, no greater proof could be given than that afterwards frequent miracles were wrought, as well by Hugh Dispenser, the Chief Justice of England, a man most just and equitable in every decision, as well in regard to the poor as the rich, and also by Simon and some others who kept their faith to God even to death, for the sake of justice to the realm of England. And this they had rightly undertaken, to preserve against the foreigners and even against the king himself, who had wrongly kept them back, as we have already mentioned, from receiving the remission of their sins at the hands of that holy man, Robert Grosstest, Bishop of Lincoln, in the edict made respecting the Battle of Lewis. Since then they were fighting for a just cause, they died in justice, and therefore after their deaths some of them were permitted by God to work miracles, and so to preserve for themselves glory and veneration, in consequence of which it is believed that they are reigning with God in glory. Amongst these valiant heroes was Roger de Rule, a companion of the guy whom we have mentioned, and who also, like him, was killed. As for King Henry, who, by his undue partiality for foreigners, had inflicted an injury upon England, he went out in arms to engage in this battle against Simon, in order to restore justice to England, wearing, however, the armor of some other person. I might have said that the king had gone out to fight for the justice of England, unless his escape from the battle and his restoration to his kingly power would have enabled him once more to have collected aliens against born Englishmen, and so the last error should be worse than the first. It seems, then, to have been the intention of the barons that the king should die along with them should it have become necessary that they should fall in the battle in which the king was engaged. Their plan was that he should be unknown to his own adherents and should fall under the heavy weight of their blows. Being unable to fight like the others, he kept calling out at the extent of his voice, I am Henry, the old king of England, swearing sometimes, by the love of God, and at other times, by God's head, and constantly affirming that he was the king. And he exclaimed to the men who were striking at him, Do not hit me, for I am too old to fight. It was his use and want to swear such oaths as these. As he was making use of these exclamations, they took his helmet from off his head, and discovering by his countenance that he really was the king, he was removed out of the battle, and on the day following he was restored to his kingdom to the great satisfaction of the enemies of Simon and the barons who had been killed. A few weeks afterwards, when the king was enabled to act according to the uncontrolled wishes of himself and some of his nobility, he outlawed from his kingdom his own sister, the wife of Simon, along with her daughter, a most beautiful damsel who afterwards married the Prince of Wales, and three sons of the same Simon. I love the vividness of so many of the details in this account, especially of Simon the Younger's army fleeing in their underwear from Edward's surprise attack. Uh, and also, although there's no ambiguity about where the chronicler's sympathies lie, there is an odd touch of sympathy um, intermixed with mockery in the pathetic portrait of King Henry there at the end. Um, and the text makes it a little bit unclear when it says that the king rode out to engage in battle. Um, but the king was Simon's prisoner, uh, so the idea is that the barons have brought the king out onto the battlefield in someone else's armor, so that if they lose, the royalists might unwittingly kill the king uh, while they're killing the rebel barons. 
this particular detail seems a bit fantastical to me. Uh, and some modern discussions of the battle mention this idea of the king being out in the battle, and others don't. Um, it strikes me as an unusual thing to do with so valuable a prisoner, uh, so count me skeptical. Um, it's also not included in our second text for today, which has a good claim to being a much more reliable account of the Battle of Evesham. This text is an untitled text in Anglo-Norman French, copied, and only recently rediscovered by modern historians, uh, onto the back, or dorse, uh, of a genealogical roll chronicle of the kings of England. This roll is cataloged as College of Arms Manuscript 3-23B. Is, is that not the name of the form in Terry Gilliam's Brazil? Uh, anyway, this roll is what it sounds like. It's a rolled-up scroll, um, 323 centimeters long, uh, or 10 and a half feet, and about 20 centimeters wide, or roughly eight inches. Um, it's made up of five stitched-together pieces of vellum, or membranes. Its main content on the front side is a genealogical chart uh, that has bits of prose history embedded in it um, that covers the kings of England, ending with Edward I. Um, and this suggests that uh, the chart was probably created not long after Edward's death in 1307. The function of such a role was essentially as a kind of study guide, uh, a cliff's notes for the succession of kings, um, which itself provided a skeleton on which one could organize the other events and periods of English history. It was designed as a memory aid for members of the knightly classes who had perhaps limited literacy. There's an established tradition of writing miscellaneous texts on the back of such roles. Um, usually these are things relevant to aristocratic interests, like lists of popes or treatises on heraldry. Um, and on the back of this role, we have a narrative of the Battle of Evesham. Uh, this text was identified and shared, both in transcription and translation, by Olivier de la Borderie, uh, J.R. Maticot, and D.A. Carpenter in their article, The Last Hours of Simon de Montfort, A New Account, uh, which was published in the English Historical Review in the year 2000. Uh, one quaint bit of manuscript evidence these scholars point out concerning this text is that the account of the battle wasn't written up at the top of the backside of the roll, um, but at the bottom, they say, quote, But instead the text was copied on the dorse of the fifth and last membrane, making it necessary to unfurl the whole roll in order to read it. This seems to indicate that the account of Evesham was conceived as a complement to the last part of the genealogical chronicle devoted to Henry III's reign. The reader finishing this section and wanting to know more about the Battle of Evesham only had to turn the roll over, without even having to let go of it since the text is written upside down. That's a fun little bit of medieval user interface design for you. Anyway, uh, Laborderie, Maticot, and Carpenter conclude that, based on evidence in this text, um, the original version of this account, uh, which was later copied imperfectly onto our scroll, was very likely written by a monk of Evesham, either for the use of a noble family, or possibly as a bit of spiel that could be read out to the many lay pilgrims that came to the site of the battle um, in the years following, uh, which would explain why it's written in Anglo-Norman French and rather than Latin. 
The scholars think that the author was very probably either an eyewitness to the battle or consulted with local people who were, uh, and they're even willing to take the reported direct speech of various characters as reasonably accurate reporting uh, rather than literary invention. Uh, I would need a little bit more convincing on that particular point, uh, but it's certainly an enticing idea. Though this text is fairly short, uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'll abridge it a bit, um, namely leaving off uh, its account of the surprise attack at Kenilworth and going straight to the day of the battle. Also, as I mentioned, the copyist was working with an imperfect text, uh, as seen by the gaps that he leaves in spots where the text was either missing or words were illegible. Um, and at one point, he indicates with a little cross symbol that some large chunk of the original text is missing from his exemplar. Uh, unfortunately for military historians, the missing material includes most of the actual battle. Um, but this works fine for us, as it carries us straight from Simon's address to his troops before the battle starts, uh, right to his death. Before we get into it, uh, a quick definition. The text mentions things happening around the canonical hour of Terse. Uh, this would be the third hour after sunrise, which in uh, the month of August would indicate sometime around 8.30 in the morning. And as I mentioned, the translation I'm drawing from is provided as an appendix to Laborderie uh, Maticot and Carpenter's article. Here it is. Sir Simon de Montfort have their army a little before prime, and came from Kempsey to Evesham as if they intended to stay there for the whole of the night. But around Terse their scout informed them that Sir Edward and Sir Gilbert de Clare, Earl of Gloucester, were coming from Worcester with all their army and were ready to do battle. And immediately everyone in the abbey and the town shouts out and runs to take up arms. When those who were not before so were armed and ready, Earl Simon rises and takes leave of the Bishop of Worcester, Walter de Cantaloupe, with whom he had been sitting in council since his arrival up until now, embraces him, and receives his blessing. And the bishop goes off as far as Blockley weeping, ordering that people should move into the church since the battle was starting at Evesham. Then, as if a harbinger of the painful event that was to take place, the sun withdrew its light, and an extraordinary dark, foul, and frightful wind swept over the vault of heaven. With a few large drops of rain, it quickly passed, and the sky grew clearer and the air milder. Meanwhile, as the Earl was discussing some other matter, someone said to him, Seeing how we have been hard-pressed for some time now, and we have not slept or eaten for three days, and so we and our horses are almost done for and exhausted, for this reason let us go into the church and the tower, which is very strong and can be defended, until our allies who are still in different parts of the country come to our aid, and until your army has recovered its strength. To this the earl immediately replied, No, fair friend, no. One ought to seek knights on the battlefield, and chaplains in churches. And as he came out of the abbey gate, Sir Guy de Balliol shattered to pieces the lance bearing the standard against the top of the gate. Then the earl said, Now, God help us, now. 
And when they came to the conduit, or washing place, of the town of Evesham, the earl addressed everyone together and said, Fair lords, there are many among you who are not as yet tried and tested in the world, and who are young. You have wives and children, and for this reason look to how you might save yourselves and them. Cross the bridge and you will escape from the great peril that is to come. And to Sir Hugh Dispenser he said, My lord Hugh, consider your great age and look to saving yourself. Consider the fact that your counsel can still be of great value to the whole country, for you will leave behind you hardly anyone of such great value and worth. Straight away Sir Hugh replied, My lord, my lord, let it be. Today we shall all drink from one cup, just as we have in the past. And with these words they leave the town. Then the Welsh and the others turned and raised a cry up to the skies, so that the whole ground seemed to echo against this frightful noise, and thereupon they formed up into battle order. And Sir Humphrey de Bowen, Earl of Hereford, who had been designated commander of the foot soldiers, withdrew and remained in the rear guard, at which the Earl of Leicester said, Sir Humphrey, Sir Humphrey, that's no way to conduct a battle, putting the foot soldiers at the rear. I know well how this will turn out. Meanwhile, Sir Edward and Sir Gilbert de Clare, Earl of Gloucester, had knighted several men in the meadow called Mosham, between Crakeham and Evesham, and had chosen and designated twelve of the strongest and most intrepid men-at-arms, and they knew that they were to kill the Earl of Leicester, and break through the ranks forcibly and rapidly in such a way that they would look at no one nor let anyone come between them until they had reached the person of the Earl. And they came up the hill with their army in three divisions— and after Earl Simon had realized that they were coming and had seen the manner of them and saw the Earl of Gloucester's banner coming up alongside over towards the river, he said, How skillfully they are advancing. Our bodies are theirs, our souls are God's. And when the sides... And here the scribe has put a mark indicating a large chunk of missing text. The text resumes mid-sentence with the killing of Simon. Horse and with his lance struck him through the neck. And it was Sir Roger de Mortimer, for he could be recognized by his armor and shield straps. And straightway all the knights of importance turned away from him, and then some others beheaded him, cut off his hands and feet, and riddled his body, long since dead, all over with wounds. And no such torment has ever been heard of, they cut his private parts clean off. And then... Whatever was left of the knights, men-at-arms, esquires, and foot-soldiers, if there were any, took flight and scattered completely, and the others pursued them, and from every side killed them. And such was the speed of their flight, that many thought the water in the river to be safer than the land, with the result that a multitude of them drowned, and in that place where they thought to have refuge and succor, they incurred danger and death. God alone knew how many of them there were. And in this battle there fell together with Earl Simon, his son Henry, Sir Hugh Dispenser, and here I'm going to skip over a long list of names and jump to the end, and several other knights whose names were not known, and several others who had gone to the bottom of the river fully armed. Prisoners taken were, and here I shall also omit a long list of prisoners' names, and then Sir Edward and his side pursued those who survived all over the fields, and everywhere killed them. Within the town, the abbey courtyard, the cemeteries, and the monastery church, the dead bodies lay thick and dense on the ground like animals. And, what was horrendous to see and painful to speak of, 
the choir of the church and the inside walls and the cross and the statues and the altars were all sprayed with the blood of the wounded and dead, so that from the bodies that were around the high altar, a stream of blood ran right down into the crypts. And this lasted from terse until mid-afternoon. As if so much evil were not yet enough for them, whatever was valuable in the abbey and the churches and the town, they took and carried away. And because not all the dead had been killed on the battlefield, and their bodies lay scattered all over the fields and throughout the whole town, the entire abbey and the churches and the great garden, and some lay drowned in the river, no one knew how many there were except God, to whom is the power and the glory, world without end. Amen. Well, next episode, we're going to continue with the Melrose Chronicle to find out just what happened to Simon's severed limbs in a little series of stories that takes us away from military history and back into hagiography. Uh, I will just conclude our look at the Battle of Evesham with an observation from the authors of the article. They call the slaughter of knights at Evesham appallingly novel, because uh, their armor generally protected knights from serious injury in battle, and once surrounded, a knight was usually allowed to surrender. Uh, our authors say, quote, What was different at Evesham was that the surrenders were not accepted, and knights were deliberately killed. Hence Robert of Gloucester's calling it, quote, The murder of Evesham, for battle it was none. This manuscript's new information on the Death Squad shows that the killing of Montfort was not the result of some rush of blood to the head during the battle. Rather, it was coolly conceived at a council of war beforehand. Edward and his allies wanted Montfort dead. With no precedent in England for the execution of magnates accused of political crimes, murder on the battlefield was the only way of getting rid of him. End quote. So... Our riddle last episode was another one thematically linked to its text. Um, it was another riddle of Symphosius, and it went. Four equal sisters, and they run with skill, as if they vied, one labor they fulfill. Though near, they never touch, but keep their distances still. What is being described? Why, it is, of course, a set of four wheels. And without further ado, here's our new riddle. Tell me, what is dearest to a man during his life and loathliest after his death? Once again, tell me, what is dearest to a man during his life and loathliest after his death? I'll have the answer for you in about two weeks. In the meantime, you can find more information about the podcast and all the texts featured in it at our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at MDTPodcast, uh, or email comments, questions, or corrections to me directly at Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. I have had some feedback on the website and elsewhere uh, that I've been a little bit behind in responding to, um, but I'm hoping to catch up on such things in the coming week, my only sort of regular week of actual summer vacation. Um, so those of you who did take the time to send me comments, uh, you might check back on those soon. 
And to all of you, thanks for listening. <laughs>